Hello and welcome to uh, an episode of uh, Addictions Edited. This is um, an interview episode and today I'm going to be talking to Dr Ed Day who is the UK government recovery champion and rather than uh, try and second guess which of the affiliations are most pressing I'm going to let Ed uh, introduce himself. Uh, Incidentally of course Ed is also the um, president of the SSA speaking on the SSA's podcast. Uh, Probably worth putting that out there before we start. So uh, Ed uh, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Thanks, Rob. Yeah, so I am a an addiction psychiatrist. So I have worked in the in the National Health Service for getting on for 20 years as a consultant. I, I currently work in um, Solihull in the West Midlands. Um, and the other half of my job is spent as a university academic. So I'm a, a clinical reader in addiction psychiatry at the University of Birmingham. Uh, and as you mentioned, I sort of have a third role, which is a seconded uh, role as as the UK government national recovery champion. Um, so um, on the recovery champion role, I mean, this was uh, when you took it over. This was a new role, um, uh, I understand. So l- I guess largely you've you've kind of uh, had a bit of a role in in determining what that involves. But but what's the purpose of this role, and uh, and what does it involve for you? Yeah, that's a very good point. It was a new role, and. As such, it was slightly without definition in that it, it, it was attached to the 2017 drug strategy, which in the in the litany of drug strategies we've had in the in the UK in the last 20 years was probably the least memorable and, and exciting. But one of the things it did promise was that it was going to appoint a recovery champion. And um I remember looking at the job description at the time, and I assumed that, it, that, that, that they would want someone with lived experience as the recovery champion. But I think it, it proved difficult to find a person that was willing to um, fulfil the role they had, which, which, which involves quite a bit of work with government ministers and other sort of high level groups and also not a lot of pay. So um, I, I think there was a struggle to, to find someone to fit it, fit that role. When I came into it, it had been sort of lying dormant for about 18 months. And so I, I looked back at what the original brief was and the things I took from it that I had to do were um, firstly to try and ensure that the government is delivering evidence based treatment in the UK for, 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 for drugs and alcohol um, problems. And secondly, to try to get everyone in the field to work together to to unite people to bring people together and that was relevant from my perspective because of course i'm a i'm a clinician and i've spent all my time in 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 the sort of professionally led treatment services but i'd also done quite a bit of work um research wise and, and clinically with the lived experience recovery community and i i i went into the job um deciding that I was going to focus, the, the, the clue is in the title, it's recovery champion. So I was going to try and promote, ensure that re- the concept of recovery was promoted in everything I did. It would have been easy for me to, to fall back on the things that I'd done a lot of them, um, you know, medical treatments or, or, or psychosocial treatments, but but I, I wanted to try and embrace the, um, the peer-led recovery world and, and to bring that into the treatment system. Um. Yeah, that sounds really, really important. Um, you, you talk, uh, you talk in your reports about uh, bringing about a, a recovery-oriented system of care. Um, so, does this uh, does this involve 
putting people with lived experience uh, kind of more centrally to uh, how treatment services are delivered? Um, yes, I, I, more centrally would be one way of putting it. I mean, I think I think the idea is is that um, the trouble in the UK, from my observation, is that in the last uh, twenty, well, in, pretty much in my career since I started, so I became a consultant in two thousand and three, just as the the Blair. Uh, drug treatment revolution was sort of kicking in a lot of money was coming into the treatment field and the UK system really did um, become one of the best in the world the the, the treatment outcomes we achieved were very good the the quality of work we were doing the the, the, um, we were delivering evidence-based interventions we were diverting people from the criminal justice system we were doing some great stuff but but come the end of the decade sort of 2008 2009 there was a realization that we probably needed to do more with we'd done the sort of first stage of the journey, we we reduced harm and we engaged people, but we weren't moving people on into recovery. And and I started doing a lot of work with a colleague in, in at the University of Birmingham, David Best, and, and we were looking at, at this concept of recovery, which which I felt in my clinical work was the bit that was missing. We 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 could help people stop using substances, but we didn't uh, look to change their environment um, around them so that they could maintain that that abstinence and we didn't um we didn't go back and look at the causes of the addiction and try and help people work through those so that they could sustain that that recovery and i so so i came to believe quite strongly that the ideal system had both of those um elements but both the sort of professionally led stuff and the and the recovery stuff which was often led by people with with lived experience and of course unfortunately for mainly political reasons the two sides almost got pitched against each other so we had for a long period particularly around 2010 onwards this thing that you're either for harm reduction or you were for abstinent recovery and there were constant rows and people arguing so one of the things i determined when i came in was that the common enemy we had um was 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 really austerity and the cuts that we'd had to the treatment system and the and the social inequalities that that bred addiction and the only way we'll challenge those is for everyone that has an interest in this area to come together and work together, use their expertise together. So that's been my goal to try and um, to, to, to bring the whole thing together. But my observation come 2019 when I started was that the, the peer led recovery part, although it looked really exciting and promising in 2010, had kind of withered on the vine largely because of austerity. It was the first bit to go in the tre- in the treatment system. So. I wanted to try and um, to go back to the to the, the the basics there. Look at what had worked. Find the areas where it hadn't withered away and it, it really worked in the UK, and try and um, bring the attention to that and 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 to, to to demonstrate to policymakers that this was a really important part of the whole system. I, I think that's really interesting about that kind of um, kind of polemic. Uh, that used to happen with harm reduction and um, and, and abstinence, and uh, it kind of reflects um, what Professor John Kelly talked about in the uh, was it the keynote speech in the SSA's addiction, um, annual conference, which is incidentally for for listeners online and well worth a listen. Um, so, so in order to um, advance this kind of uh, you know to promote uh, mutual aid support. Um, one of the one of the things that you did you've done is is, is specifically go to uh, groups of people with lived experience and talk to them about you know their needs and their perspectives. And considering you've been working in the treatment sector for you know twenty or so years, um, 
what new things did you learn um, whilst doing that in the last last year or two? Um, I, I think uh, if you work with people with um, serious addiction problems, as I have done, um, I mean, people don't come to treatment services unless they can't resolve the problems themselves. And, and a large number of people run into problems with all forms of addiction and marshal their own resources and, and the resources have been around them and, and manage to get things under control, get back on track. If you can't, it's either because you've you've the problems just become too severe or you've outrun your resources, perhaps because you didn't have many in the first place. You've, you've had a lot of early life trauma. You've had very few opportunities um, growing up. You've perhaps not had much education. You've not developed vocational skills. So the danger is when you work in the treatment services that you can get very, you can, you can develop a very negative attitude, a very demoralized attitude. Things don't seem to change. There are a lot of problems. Things constantly go wrong. People make a bit of progress and then slip back. When you meet people who are in the, and I found this way before I took this role, but 10, 10 or more years ago, I met, um, I can picture it now, I met a guy just by chance in my treatment service in Birmingham who um, had wandered in for some reason um, and he was in recovery. He was five years or so in recovery from a drug problem, so absent recovery. And he had no idea that this treatment centre, which was 200 yards from his house, was actually there because right. he lived in a completely different world. He lived in a world where um, he spent most of his time working on sort of recovery-related activities, but he was in a completely separate system to the treatment system. And we didn't know he existed. He didn't know we existed. But once I got to know that recovery world, it is truly inspirational. I, I, I have had the experience of getting people like him to come and talk to my treatment team and share their story rather in the style, I guess you do in a, in a, in a 12 step fellowship meeting. And very often that is an amazingly rewarding experience for the staff because they don't get to see that, that um, side of the story. People tend to leave the treatment once, once they're, they're making good progress. And what I've, I mean, it's truly exhausting working with the recovery community because they are 24 seven. They are, they live and breathe this, um, the, the, the 12 step saying you've only, you only keep what you've got by giving it away is very true. People, people get a lot from helping other people. You, you spread the message, you, you, um, you um, also help yourself. And I think there are some amazing, amazing individuals around the UK who have battled through pretty horrendous early life stories. Some of them perhaps less so, but they, they've now gone on to devote a lot of their energy to helping other people out of this. And I just think, the thing I've learned is I, I need to communicate that to politicians and to um, other people that, that, that decide um, policy, because this is unless we tap into that massive energy, we are missing something enormous in, in, in the treatment sphere. And I, and I personally believe in my in my clinic where I work with people, a lot of a good percentage of the people I work with have have been receiving opiate agonist treatments, maybe methadone, buprenorphine for for maybe 10 or 15 years. And the people that make progress generally do so when they connect with someone who's who's been there already. And I talk about, you know, it's a shark infested water you're in and the people in recovery are on the on the life raft. They're safe, they're on the boat and they're, they're, they're putting the arm down to, to pull other people in. And it does it does feel like that because it's, it's an amazing um, lift that people get when they discover that others have had the same problems as them and have found a way out of that 
and yet somehow didn't know that those people existed at all. So I, th I think that's the one thing I take is the energy and the passion and enthusiasm of this group who are often doing a lot of this work totally voluntarily in their own time. So, so with, with this kind of energy and passion and with the extra money that's that's uh, been um, allocated in the recent drug strategy, what, what do you see the the future of mutual aid uh, support groups? Uh, how do you see that kind of future role? Do you think they're going to kind of become much more prominent now? Well, so I'd, I'd pick you up on, on terminology there. And that's this is one of the one of the difficulties we have in this. So so mutual aid, as in um, as in, I mean, the 12 step fellowships would be the best example. There are lots of other examples um, smart um, recovery. Uh, there are lots of individual sort of local groups that people people run. Those, I mean, the, the, lots of people recover from addiction going nowhere near professional services through through the fellowships, through the rooms. And that's a, an amazingly powerful resource. And that will carry on whatever anyone else does. But I talk about recovery support services. So you mentioned John Kelly, and I definitely would urge uh, people to, to listen to John's talk because it is a John is the leading academic at, um, in this area and has done some amazing work in, in the States. And. Uh, John will John will sort of will tell you that the recovery support services you can break out a number of different elements to this. So at the heart of it is what you could perhaps call the recovery community. So that's people that are that that are in recovery that are working on recovery are are maybe have, have, have become absent or are, are becoming absent from their substance, but are working on their mental health, their physical health, and you know working on ways of. of finding better employment and uh, developing themselves, um, finding uh, jobs, uh, um, housing and um, social relationships. So you can break recovery support services into different elements. How, for example, housing, um, employment, training, um, uh, social activities, relationships, um, even things like uh, universities. So I've been working on developing um, recovery in the particular environment of a university. If you think about those services, they need to exist the clinical services need to sit in that bigger pool of, of resources and, and, and services. And what I need to do with the drug strategy is convince the people that hold the purse strings that a percentage of the budget should be invested in stimulating that. Now, I've said to you, these are, these are people that work incredibly hard giving away their time, but mm. you can't expect people to do that. It's not a freebie. That only happens if you pump prime it, if you support it, if you build an infrastructure around it. And so I see the recovery orientated system as having these different elements all working together and, and linking together. And, and to be honest, recovery support services move into, into and through the professional services. So um, very often the best way to engage someone who's uncertain about whether they want to come for treatment is to meet someone with lived experience at the front door who takes them in. Um, meet people working in hospitals, engaging people on, on liver units who have got alcohol-related liver disease, who know that they need to stop but just don't see any pathway to doing so. Engaging with people that have been there and done that is often the most powerful way of, of doing that. So I hope that what I, what I talk about quite often is I, I borrow a phrase that the Royal College of Psychiatrists used about mental health. Which I think the recovery support services need parity of esteem. So we need to recognise that the people with lived experience who've developed these services are professionals in their own rights in some ways. They're, they're experts. They're not a threat to the to professionals like me. We, we, we need all of our skills um, in a treatment journey. 
But what we need to do is structure it such that we can, a portion of the money is always spent on, on those services that don't look as clinical, that, that go on longer in the, in the community. And that's harder because that's harder to commission. I, think, I, I can see that. It's not, a, it's not a bricks and mortar thing necessarily. It's not a, you know, X number of detoxes a year that you're commissioning. So that's what I hope we can do. And, and I'm working with, with groups in the field to try and develop quality standards so that commissioners will know what a, a, a high quality um, recovery support service looks like. And we, we've coined this term lived experience recovery organization, LIRO, which, which defines some of these excellent um, organizations that are developed around the country, led by the passion of sort of lived experience and, and personal uh, recovery journeys. Um, uh, fantastic. Uh, so um, talking about the uh, the UK government strategy um, and the funding coming from this, you mentioned that part of your role as recovery champion is about uh, kind of ensuring or, or supporting uh, the use of evidence based practice or, or, or uh, research findings in policy and practice. Um, when that comes to, I mean, how, how, A, how do you go about doing that? And, and B, can that be quite challenging? I mean, policy making is a notoriously messy activity. Uh, how does your role fit in in trying to support the use of evidence in that process? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question because that's that's um, that's what exactly what I've been grappling with. So I think you could say, and I've been involved in a lot of it myself, but the UK really has blazed the trail in terms of formulating evidence to, to give to policymakers. So things like NICE, I mean, NICE, um, the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence has been a sort of world leading body in terms of synthesizing evidence and putting in sort of economic factors to guide healthcare. And, and likewise, organisations like the NTA and then, and then the National Treatment Agency, as was then Public Health England, have done a lot of work developing guidelines in, in this area. So we've got a lot of, we know what works in the sort of professional sphere, and that's quite well defined. What isn't as clear is the stuff I'm talking about, the recovery support services. And again, John's lead, John Kelly's lead has been fantastic because there is evidence there. There are, there are randomized controlled trials, albeit fairly early, rudimentary, perhaps limited numbers, and usually in, the, in North America, in, in the USA. But there is an evidence base emerging for how you can develop these services. And so one of the jobs I think I've had as recovery champion is to try to take that evidence base and bring it to the, the commissioning discussion. Because my experience of commissioning is that increasingly, because we have this high quality evidence, people, unless you've got the evidence, your particular service or, or role doesn't even, doesn't even reach the table unless you've got some evidence to, to back it up. Just having anecdote or personal story isn't enough. So I, one of the things I've called for and I'm working on trying to develop is a, I think we need a UK addiction research, a recovery research institute. We need some way of, of collating the evidence that we have, of designing better studies to capture this information. And this is harder work to do because it's, it generally involves longer term studies with more diffuse participants. And I personally think it will be best done through co-production, through getting people with lived experience to, to do this work alongside academics like me. Um, so I'm trying to develop that and, and, and um, Dame Carol Black's review has recognized that and has, has pointed towards that um, um, recognizes that. Um, but a lot of this is about developing the, is probably giving local uh, areas tools to, to measure whether what they've commissioned in this space is having an effect. And I don't think those tools will be the same as, as the ones that work for the, the more defined professional 
um, sphere. So this is a work in progress, but I think for the first time we've got a proper conversation that involves the key people, which are the people with lived experience, the people going through this themselves, but also then applying the, the tools that we've developed um, in academia or in clinical services to support that process. A lot of what's come out of the UK drug strategy see, uh, rests on this kind of um, a collaboration, cross-departmental work, uh, you know, organisations that have struggled to work together, working together. Um, and that, that seems like a, a big challenge, even just within like uh, research settings or academic settings, like getting getting the disparate um, areas of research to work together does seem like a big challenge. Um, it, <laughs> that's just a statement. That's not really a question, is it? <laughs> it's a complex problem, Robert. That's the trouble. It's a, this is not a straightforward... There's no one cause of addiction and there's no one solution. In fact, there's, there's you know, it's a long term um, complex issue. And so, it, it, you know, a lot of the things, if we if we get down to it, are, are, are digging deeper. Addiction is really a symptom of, of, of other of other problems, if, if we're being honest here. Mm. Um, and, and, and there are promising signs that it's the first time I've seen where, where government different departments are working together, are being forced to work together. How long, you know, whether we can translate that into action remains to be seen, but it's looking better than it has done for a long time at the moment. So it's, it's almost, I mean, certainly in my, um, in my lifetime, I'm sure, uh, you know, the, the further you, you look back, uh, yeah, patterns come and go. But this is the second era, I guess, of large investment in addiction treatment uh, services. So considering that this money is, is, is due to to come into play in the, in the fairly in the very near future um is this an opportune moment to kind of pause and reflect on, on what did happen in the early uh, 2000s um and do you think there's anything that we can learn from that era and, and something and things that we we should do differently oh uh, we can learn an enormous amount from it um and this was i mean i, I was involved in a lot of the various evidence um, pro, um the, the groups that, that were providing evidence for the dan carroll black review and, and it was said, I mean, I heard it said a lot of times, people harking back to the glory days of the NTA and um, if only it was like that, it was much better then. I don't remember being quite like that back then, but, you know, that's the beauty of the <laughs> retrospectoscope. It shows things up very differently. Mm. Um, but we can, learn, we can learn a lot from it. So one of the things is that, that it, you know you're getting old when you, you've been around a complete cycle and you're, you're thinking, when, when you hear people talking about wouldn't it be better if we diverted people away from the criminal justice system and into treatment? Um, thinking, well, hang on a minute, that's exactly what we were doing um, just over 10 years ago and doing it really well, mm. and it all got dismantled. So some of the stuff we know we can do, and there, there's hopefully enough people around that remember doing it the first time that, that can you know apply that, that learning. There's also then the learning for what we didn't do so well. So one of the bigger missions, I think, I always felt in the first wave, the one, the only thing the NTA didn't really address was the workforce. Mm. And, and the, 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 there were initial attempts, like the DANOS, you'll remember the, the, the um, Drug and Alcohol National Occupational Standards, but they didn't quite hit at the right level and they didn't quite translate into, um, into changes in the workforce. I think obviously that's been flagged up as a major issue at the moment and i would absolutely agree but with my treatment hat on the, the, the workforce is really struggling now it's very hard to recruit it's difficult to get you know people have got big caseloads there's there's so things like clinical supervision and um and, and you know training for, for staff to deliver effective interventions is largely all gone 
Um, so there's a huge bit of work there to try and I try and get that right. And again, I'm also juggling the, the, the lived experience at part of that, um, because I think that the lived experience world also needs that framework of support to define roles, the, the you know, the, the, um, the, um, peer mentor or the, or the recovery champion or the, you know, whatever the local term is for a recovery coach for, for, for that sort of role. We need to give, without trying to take over and dictate in the way that professionals often do, we need to support the recovery world to develop quality standards so that they can, they can enter this world of parity of esteem, have, you know, be funded to deliver roles so that there is people people can use their lived experience but also benefit from training and supervision and perhaps then jump into the professional world if that's what they they feel is best so the workforce is a, is a second is the first thing we we, we can learn the, the second is that is that business of let's try and all work together and 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 see that there's there's a space and a need for all of these different elements and and to have the respect of the different components um, rather than this sort of playing one off against another. Um, I mean, part of that is the, the political process and, 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 and drugs particularly. I mean, I, I, I should say that, I mean, this is a drug strategy, but it does look as though this, this will apply as it often does to alcohol uh, as well. That, that'll follow on the, on the coattails. But I mean, there's still this problem that around drugs, the, the illegality of drugs and, and you know, all, will always cause problems in terms of how we, we um, deliver these things. But, uh, you know, I, I, that we know from the first time around, we can make a big difference if we get the right investment and, and, and deliver it in the right way. I, I think I remember, it, it might have been you, apologies if, if I'm just quoting your words back at you, but I remember someone saying um, that they regretted not making kind of hay whilst the sun shine, whilst there was money there there were these kind of higher ideals that people that, that kind of got delayed because we can do that anytime and then when the money kind of ran out those things like you know like the workforce like uh collaboration almost almost that kind of maslow thing it's like all the money gets spent on the immediate things of reducing caseloads of, of getting a system back to something that works but the importance of making sure you start to establish those kind of higher end things of of, of kind of national collaboration uh, of, of joint approaches of uh you know of a workforce development strategy uh, are really important but but take take some consideration yeah i'd say that's a very good point um i mean the the, the trouble is the whole system is is with you can't really avoid it but it's very it's very built on risk and avoiding risk which is obviously in our current world essential that's what gets the headlines that's what you have to do but the trouble is is lifting your head up and looking at the positive and and the, and the longer term and the and, and the long view is what you need to do. The what are you know looking at people's strengths and helping them move on. What do they need to develop rather than just what do we need to contain this particular crisis? I mean, I think one of the interesting things about the there's a lot of money been proposed to be invested here, but it's coming in in a staged way, and I think that might allow us to to plan a bit better than we did last time it did i remember last time it did happen very quickly and it almost felt that we were rushing to set services up and just employing just grabbing people and getting them into a role and and sometimes that wasn't the best way to do things it is the way you had to do it at the time um but it may be that just by the the, the phased nature of this we get a bit more of a chance to have a look at 
you know what what works it, it will be very difficult i mean things like the workforce thing has to happen at the same time as you're ramping up the services so i don't and, and of course that's a national thing that will apply everywhere and yet the money's going to local areas so some of these things haven't been worked out but i you know i've been to a lot of meetings since even since the strategy was announced and people are thinking about this and trying to work out the best way of doing it that's fantastic okay well thank you ed day for a fascinating interview uh, thanks to everyone who's listening for listening and thank you to anyone else who has supported the ssa podcast in the ways that they have um okay until next time goodbye